if I did a little kind of man on the street, like, I, you know, Chicago, I just stood there. I said, hey, what do you know about Mary Magdalene? Usually the details people will share are wholly inconsistent, completely inconsistent with the biblical witness. They say she's some redeemed prostitute, right? Or that she's Jesus' girlfriend. Or later, like according to Dan Brown, uh, you know, the Da Vinci Code, that she was Jesus' secret wife. Like that's what we say. In other words, we told ourselves this is Mary. We've come to expect and only see this version of this woman. And in doing so, we miss this incredible opportunity, like the money tree, to allow her story to impact our lives. It's, and it's, basically, it's theological or spiritual inattentional blindness when we do that. We utterly miss the beauty and truth of this amazing story when we, re- we reduce it to something, an interpretation that I'll talk about in a moment that is completely uh, based on tradition only and not, not the Bible. And that just causes us to overlook and utterly miss what's sitting in plain sight, very plain sight, plain reading. So this morning, I just want to explore several plain facets of Mary Magdalene's story. Right there in Scripture, I'm not going to try and do like theological leaps here with you. Just pay attention to her testimony and, uh, and allow it to shape our own, okay? Three facets. We're going to look at the magnitude of her transformation, the power of her ministry, and the depth of her awareness, okay? So first, the magnitude of her transformation. Like I said, many people, and this, these will be from three different gospel readings. So the first one's going to be from Luke chapter um, 8, I think. Double check. That's not... Th- you guys have bulletins, right? This is your chance to open it. Luke chapter 8, verses 1 to 3, okay, to make sure I'm on track. So we've said Mary Magdalene is this bad woman that Jesus redeems, right? And where that comes from is this 2,000-year-old uh, myth, really, first propagated by Pope Gregory I. He was the pope back in the 6th century. He's known as Gregory the Great. I don't think he's so great. Uh, where he preached this sermon on Easter one year where he correlated the Mary Magdalene, Luke 8, with this woman, sinful woman that we're going to talk about next Sunday in Luke chapter 7. Remember her? She has the alabaster jar. She pours it on Jesus' feet. And there's reasons for na- of narrative form for that um, that you, we won't get into today. But the, the real reason, if you're, willing to un- if you're willing to unpack it historically, is that in the early days of the church, what most drove uh, the interpretation of women's stories was a sexualization of women over-sexualization of women in order to dominate women, keep women from becoming leaders or keep women from taking over. That's, and that's a historical fact. I've talked about it in previous weeks. We see it in our politics. We see it in our news. If you're not aware of that in centers of power, I'm sorry. I'm sorry to break your bubble today. Women often become objects of sexual stigma in our society, and that's true in the church. So according to an author and historian named James Carroll, uh, he says this, and this was in a Smithsonian article I dug up from him back in 2015. He says, the world into which Christianity was born was a world rife with patriarchy. And I talked about this in the first week of this series. As well as flesh-hating spiritualities like Stoicism, Manichaeism, Neoplatonism. And those influenced Christian thinking as it's being shaped, as it's just become a global movement. Thus, there was this need to disempower women in the Bible, the figure of Mary Magdalene uh, specifically, so that her succeeding sisters in the church would not compete compete with men for power. Are you seeing this? And and so they they meshed that with the impulse to discredit women generally. And then he says, this was most efficiently done by reducing women like Mary Magdalene to their sexuality. Even as sexuality itself was reduced to the realm of temptation 
and the source of human unworthiness. And then he goes on to say that thus, that this, this power, Mary Magdalene, this power who began as this powerful woman at Jesus' side, she is the first witness to the resurrection in every gospel. She's the last witness to the crucifixion in every gospel. Powerful woman at Jesus' side became a redeemed whore and Christian, that's his words, Christianity's model of repentance, a manageable, controllable figure, of an effective weapon and instrument of propaganda against her own sex. And thus, when it comes to her story, I'm just saying we need to pay attention, friends, to what it says in the Bible. Read your Bibles. Just open it up and read it. And here's what it says. Luke chapter 8, verses 1 to 3. After this, this is just after that story of the woman with the alabaster jar, which Jenny's going to preach on next Sunday. Jesus traveled around from one town to another, proclaiming the good news of the kingdom. The twelve, the, the disciples were with him. And then in Luke chapter 8, verse 2, And so were some women who had been cured of evil spirits and diseases. Mary called Magdalene, which is the town she came from, uh, whom from, uh, who, from whom seven demons had come out. Joanna, the wife of Chusa, the manager of Herod's household, Susanna, and many others. These women were helping to support them out of their own means. It says nothing about her being a prostitute. It says nothing, nothing. The, and here's what this means. All we really have of Mary's background, other than that she came from this sea town called Magdala, which is kind of where I think Gregory the Great gets it. Well, you know, sea town, there's sailors there. You know, she had a business. Probably she was a prostitute. I'm like, really? Dude. And so uh, we're, we're told that right there in Luke 8, she's following Jesus because she'd been cured of seven demons. Okay? Now, that word seven in the Semitic language that Jesus spoke and where this Bible originally comes from is an idiomatic expression. It would have been for us like saying it's mega. She had mega, she had, uh, mega healing, okay? mega possessed, mega, mega sick. Like she, she was possessed by a legion, a legion of demons. The only other place in the Bible, Old New Testament, where, the, where it depicts somebody who's demon-possessed to that degree, you might remember, is Mark chapter 5. So you have this man who's possessed by a legion of demons. He's pushed outside the city. He's living among some tombs. Nobody would go near this guy. Completely isolated. They tried to restrain him. He's cutting himself. They could not, right? Remember that guy? That's Mary Magdalene, okay? Prior to meeting Jesus. So the seven demons, as you apply to her life, indicates a severe ailment. She's sick. Not necessarily demon possession. Don't, like, let that derail you. Um, this isn't a sermon about demons and stuff like that. Um, the real point is she was in dire need of, ge- of healing. Dire need. Like, terminal illness, you could say, okay? So like the, the Garrison demoniac, it's, it's likely debilitating emotionally, physically, psychologically, socially isolating. Prior to her first encounter with Jesus, she's feeling this isolation. Can't come to church on Sunday. Feels like she, just too much weight on her, right? She's living among tombs, you could say. So do you know what, friends, do you know what it's like to live among tombs? Have you ever lived among tombs yourself? I know a few of you that have recently. And uh, you've been clouded by darkness, so you've lost hope. You've, um, You've been gripped by anxiety, and you can't see past this incredibly isolating circumstance of the day. You just, you can't look toward tomorrow because today's so hard. You're in so much pain that you're such a deep loss, you just can't, can't go on, right? That's Mary Magdalene, okay? Do you see this? She's a human being like any one of us. I was watching game two of the NBA conference, Eastern Conference semifinals, a little bit of a basketball fan. Cavaliers and the Raptors. Sorry, I don't do a lot of sports analogies, but here you go. So this commercial came on, 
during the game featuring uh, DeMar Rosen and uh, Kevin Love. Kevin Love plays for the Cavaliers, DeMar Rosen for the Raptors, about their own struggles with depression and mental illness. Did you, any of you see this commercial? It's like a 30-second spot. You could find it on YouTube. And I saw that, and then I remembered it's Mental Health Awareness Month in May, and that Kevin Love had written this article earlier in the year during a regular season game. Mid-game, he leaves the game, and he's not physically injured. And he caught so, he couldn't breathe. He's having an anxiety attack. He, uh, he caught so much flack because it's so unheard of in professional sports. Like amongst men in general, I'd say, you know, you're just man up, be tough, you know, just don't be afraid. And if you do, guess what? You're benched in his profession. Or if you do in one of ours, you're fired. You're just demoted, right? And so he wrote this article and he put it on like the Players Tribune, which is an online forum for athletes, professional athletes that he realized after this episode that the support he received from his teammates uh, in the organization, the Cavalier organization that he worked for, was what got him through it. He said this in the article, everyone's going through something. Everyone's going through something. That mental health or any sort of sickness, Mary Magdalene being a broad example of just sickness, is not an athlete thing. It's not a man thing, a woman thing. It's not what you do for a living, who you are. Is not, it does not define you, okay? This is an everyone thing, he said. Everyone, global. And then he said, after he wrote the article, he read 6,000 emails in 72 hours. And he said he knew he touched a nerve. Have you ever lived among tombs at any degree? Okay. If you have, Mary is you. You're Mary. <laughs> and, and her story is your story. Men, women, young, old, single married, whether you're married for 20 years or just a year or two weeks. Or you have children or you don't have children, children in the house, not in the house. doesn't matter. It, it, what it means, it, when it says Mary has seven demons come out of her, this is you. So there's two applications I want to draw for us. And here's the first. We need to learn to receive help. We need to learn to receive help. I can picture Jesus walking through Magdala, the town where she lived. And perhaps Mary, knowing what Jesus had said prior in Luke chapter 4 about his own mission, he stood up in the church, the synagogue in his town, Nazareth, said, the Spirit of the Lord is upon me. I've come because he's anointed me to proclaim good news to the poor. And I don't think he's using, these are not metaphors, friends. Good news to the poor, because this is what Jesus did. Proclaim release to the captives, sight to the blind, and free those who are oppressed. Mary was being oppressed by an enemy. And he's there to break those chains. And Luke tells us that he left that synagogue, and then he started to do just that. He traveled from, by foot from town to town around the Sea of Galilee, Capernaum, Gennesaret, Nain, and Magdala. Magdala's on the Sea of Galilee, freeing people from demons, from darkness, from oppression, from sickness. That's what Jesus does. He helps them. And so I can imagine Mary encountering Jesus in her hometown, Magdala, knowing a little bit about him, knowing that he delivered some other people. Just read Luke. He's already done it. And this, I, saying what uh, Kevin Levin DeMar DeRozan said, I need help. I just need help. And she's not ashamed. You know, I'm... I believe in you, Jesus, enough to ask you for help. Help me, Jesus. And what did Jesus do? He helped her. It's, I mean, because she starts following him. She's been delivered. And that's what propels her to become a follower of Jesus. He rescued her. That's the first thing. Do you need help today? Any point in your life, physical, emotional, relational, Jesus is your help. He's your rescuer. That's what he's here to He's not just your buddy, your cosmic buddy. He's not just a moral security guard. He's God's help. He's sent to free you from bondage, okay? And then and now, so that's why he's here. Here's the second application. He's not about moral reform either. 
we kind of come to Jesus like this. I'm at church, you get a little Bible, become a better person. Jesus is not making, about making you a better person, okay? Uh, he doesn't give a lick about making you a better person. Look at the stories of the Pharisees. He, he is about freeing you from oppression. Life transformation is the baseline for every person who becomes a disciple of Jesus. Paul says so in uh, 2 Corinthians 5. Look at that sometime. Anyone united with Christ is created new. New creation. What's old is gone. Your old life is gone. It's not about just getting better by degrees. It's all gone. What's new has come. You are new creation in Christ. Completely new. Start over. That's what Jesus is about. Life transformation. And thus the goal and the purpose of encountering, like Mary Magdalene did, and then following Jesus is nothing short of that. Don't sell yourself short by just trying to be a better person every day and just reading a little Bible and doing a little praying, coming to a little church. Expect nothing less than transformation from Jesus. He wants to give you that, okay? And so the question is, where in your life do you need to be transformed? (laughs) You know, freed by Jesus in a relationship, you know? As you face a debilitating illness, I've already talked about it, a gripping sense of anxiety, an addiction, inadequacy, as you face whatever, and work. Jesus is like, I want to transform you. I'm not here to make you a nicer person or a better person. I'm here to make you a new person. That's a new you. That's what Jesus wants and, and desires for your life. Now, here's the key. Before I jump to the next thing. For some of us, we hear that, those questions. Yeah, I love that. Thanks, Jack. Sounds good. I want to be free. I want to be new. But how? Like, I've been doing this for a, long, a lifetime, Jack. Like, walk in my shoes for a while. It's so hard, my life. Notice Mary. He cast these seven demons of her life, but notice this in Luke 8. She's with Jesus. It says she's with him and amongst others. Like, so the disciples are there, other women are there, and many others, it says. This is so important. Um, she didn't get her needs met and then say, thanks, Jesus, I got it now. I'm good. I'm just going to go on my own way now, take care of my own needs. You know, you got me where I need to go, right? She stayed with Jesus, like I said, until the very, very, very end, at the cross, at his point of death. She went to the tomb, you know, a very scary place. She stayed with Jesus up until the very end where only a few would stay. And why? Because she knew her need. She, she, she knew her need to not only continue to have Christ in her life, an ongoing need, uh, that's what transformation takes, as well as the need to do it out, live it out with others. She didn't try and follow Jesus alone. Uh, she was with him in the company of other people who were longing for freedom and longing for transformation. So let me ask you this. How close would you say you are to Jesus today? You know, how close have you actually gotten to Jesus? You want to be free and transformed. You're here today. You're close. But how close are you? Are you allowing your life to be changed by getting really, really close to Jesus? I'm talking like as close as you would to a spouse or a best friend or one of your children, like listening to him speak, allowing his spirit to work and move and heal. Like that's what it takes, intimacy with God in order to experience freedom and transformation. And this might be preaching to the choir, but how close are you to doing that with others? Like you're here and so you're drawing near to a company of other people that are doing this as well. And maybe I'm not preaching to the choir just because you're here. I mean, we should not assume that automatically just because we're here, we're trusting our lives to other people. Some of us are isolated and we're here. We're alone and we're here. We're afraid and we're here. And are you willing to go into deep friendships with other people? That little greet time we do before the sermon isn't just a meet and greet, friends. You know, it's in the tradition of the church, it's the passing of the peace. 
And that's the last thing Jesus says to his disciples. Peace be with you. Receive the Holy Spirit. That's kind of what we're trying to do, is like say, I want to go deep into this life with Christ with you. And so let's begin that together. I'm facing what I'm facing, and you are too. We can't do it alone, friends. We're in this together. We need encouragement, prayer, all those things. So that's what Mary challenges us to do, okay, on the first thing. And do you see how, I mean, like you reduce her to this, I don't, I mean, I'm sorry, what Dan Brown did in his book and what Gregor the Great did, I mean, you reduce her to that and you've missed this amazing woman. You've missed it. And that's what she's about, just teaching us what to, how it looks like to live as disciples. And there's this, man, as I was doing study, we could actually stop there. But there's a couple things I want to tease out. These are related, so these will be a little shorter, um, these next two points. Um, maybe this will help you just unpack her story on your own a little bit. So that's the first thing. Here's the second, the, the power of her ministry. So there's the magnitude of her transformation, power of her ministry. So you have her in Luke 8 following Jesus. The next time we see Mary Magdalene in the story of God is at the cross, next time we see her. So she's following Jesus along, and then she's there at the cross in Matthew 27, and she's amongst just a few women now and just a couple disciples who are there. And it says, if you read Matthew 27, they're, do, they're there to care for Jesus' needs. That blew my mind this week. That's why I got to preach this. Because um, Mary's life is so bound up with the life of Christ that his need became her need, okay? His rejection became her rejection. His suffering became her suffering, right? It raises this interesting question, are we to minister to Jesus, have you thought about that before? Like, we think about ministering, Jesus ministering to us, like taking care of us, healing us, which is all good. And then we often think, if you're in my shoes, like we think about doing ministry for God. Like, I'm ministering for Jesus. Like, I'm going to work. I'm doing it for Christ, right? And, but what would it look like for us to not just do ministry for God, but to God, to Jesus, that's what Mary Magdalene has the audacity to do. She's ministering to the God of the universe. I mean, that's mind-blowing. Mother Teresa, she was asked once why she loved the poor the way she did. You know, she's sainted now, and um, how she could honor uh, and dignify such difficult people, like lepers, and people who, I mean, if you've been around lepers, people who smell, and people who are dying, and people who are abjectly poor— she loved them unconditionally. And she was asked, how can you do that? And she would like to wag her hand at people like this slowly in response. She said, because you did, you did it to me. And there she's uh, referring, she said, you can count the gospel on five fingers. You did it to me. Matthew 25, where Jesus says this, that at the end of the world, Christ is going to judge people based on their deeds of mercy, which can be hard for us to read because we think it's all about performance. But this kind of, he says this, Come to me, all you who are blessed by my Father. This is Jesus. For I was hungry, you gave me food. I was thirsty, you gave me drink. I was stranger, you welcomed me. Naked, you clothed me. Ill, you cared for me. In prison, you visited me. Right? And for some of us, that feels like a, 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 like a moral straitjacket. Oh my gosh. Christianity feels so hard sometimes. I've got to do all that. And this surprise, so this surprise is the people who are listening to the parable that Jesus is teaching. Like it might you. Like, Lord, when did we see you hungry and feed, not feed you and all this stuff? And Jesus says, I say to you, whenever you did it to the least, you did it to me. And here's what he's saying. Mother Teresa, when she talks about this, she says that this passage is not a pious metaphor or a moral code. She says it describes reality. That's all it is. Jesus is describing reality to us. So the secret to her infectious joy 
and boundless compassion was that in every person, every paralytic, every leper, every invalid, every orphan, she just saw Jesus. Let's close that window. Thanks, Adam. I love, I love our kids, but that's, <laughs> if that's hard for me to hear, I'm sure it's hard for you. So, um, She just saw Jesus, okay? In fact, she was asked by this Hindu, uh, what are Hindu religious leaders called? Shaman? No, that's wrong. A sadhu. See? Inattentional blindness, Hinduism. Dude, I love you, Kurt. So uh, she saw this Hindu gentleman once. He approached her, and he said, he pointed out that both he and Mother Teresa were doing the exact same thing. Uh, He would call it social work. The difference is that he and his coworkers were doing it um, for something, for a purpose. She was doing it for someone. Very subtle nuance. Uh, Or you might say to someone. So She's not a saint because she did the right thing. It's not about the golden rule. That, that did not energize her. She did it. She lived her life and as a saint today because she knew deep in her bones that serving others was serving Jesus. That she had an opportunity every day in every face she encountered to serve Jesus. And she'd do nothing less. That's what energized her. So how does it apply to us? Well, Matthew 25 and then the story of Matthew 27 when you see Mary Magdalene caring for Jesus says that our compassion toward the hunger, the nakedness, the imprisonment, the marginalization, the suffering of our world is tangible evidence of our discipleship. Uh, and so it challenges us. You know, all of us can know the text. We can defend the text. We can uphold the doctrines of the church, the deity of Christ. We can argue about whether this is really bread or really Jesus. Whatever. We can argue about what the cross means, all that stuff. You can do that and not care two figs about people in need. And so, and then you just miss the point of Christianity completely. You've made it into a religion. This text tells us that these people are the embodiment of Jesus. And that because his, in his humanity, especially because his humanity, he was nothing special. Josephus, who's the chief historian of Jesus' day, has no record of Jesus. He's a no-name rabbi. And, and then you have the prophet Isaiah says he has no stately form. He had no place to lay his head. He's not even good looking, no power, no wealth. And so here's the question. Are your eyes open to Jesus around you, all around you every day, and the faces and the lives of the strangers, the so-called others? As Joan Osborne sang in the 90s, the God on the bus, like wherever the bus is for you. Are we indiscriminately, friends, I want to push us, ministering to Jesus when he shows up in our lives? indiscriminately, non-discriminate, just saying whatever he looks like, because he looks like, he doesn't look like you. He might, but he probably doesn't. He doesn't smell like you. He doesn't have the same income you have. He doesn't probably live where you live. Are you indiscriminately ministering to Jesus where he is? And in, in his death, Mary Magdalene ministers to him in his death, in his weakness, in his suffering, in his dying in the broken, aching world? Are you courageously stepping into those spaces through prayer, through the giving of your time and your money, through encouragement, just being an encouragement, through hospitality, opening your home to others that you might not feel comfortable opening your home to, through your mere presence, like your availability? So we're, we're doing this community meal today, and we have some students joining us, high school, middle school. And what we're going to tell them is it's all about availability here. You took some time on a Sunday afternoon. Ben and Elise are doing it too. I'm stoked. And it's not, it, the food is not the point. It's about being available to Jesus. 
those guests that come to the meal are Jesus. And we're going to tell them that. And you just need to learn to see Jesus in them. And just be available to Jesus and see what he does. That's what Mary Magdalene teaches us. Do you see the power of her story? I mean, it's exciting. So here's the last thing. This is the depth of her awareness. And this is in John 20. We read the passage. And uh, so what this is, is Mary Magdalene's the first among all, I'm talking all, global all, to know the reality of the resurrection. The very first person in every gospel. She's the first person to witness the risen Christ. That's a pretty amazing deal. And so in John's gospel, we have the most kind of uh, detailed account of that. And she says, he says to her, go tell my brothers that I have not ascended, or that I'm ascending, I'm sorry. And so she encountered Jesus alive after being dead for three days. Think about that. That's pretty amazing. And then, so others are going to have the same encounter. Like the, the two guys walking on the road to Emmaus, the disciples are all going to have these encounters. Paul has that encounter right, on the road to Damascus. And so, but she's the first person charged with describing and communicating that encounter, that reality, that, that death had been defeated, and that, that Christ is alive and wants to live his life through us. That she's the one who basically sets the world on fire. She does it, which is why she's been called throughout the history of the church, the apostle to the apostles. Without Mary Magdalene, Going back to the disciples, they remain locked in an upper room, afraid that they're next, and you're not here today, right? And so we have, we have to become aware that the central calling, if she's one of us, like I said earlier, the central calling we have as followers of Christ is as witnesses. She's a witness. We are sent ones. We're not settlers. We behave like settlers. I, know, I like the game settlers, but we behave like settlers. Like we have these sacred moments or experiences or breakthroughs in life. Mountaintop moments, God shows up. He's speaking to me in some like crazy time. And the truth is we either want to get back to that time or we want to kind of bottle it up, right, and save it for later. Like the disciples when Jesus is transfigured in Luke 9. Look at that story sometime. They meet uh, Jesus up on a mountaintop and then they have this amazing time. And they're like, hey, let's just make a little hut for you and one for Elijah and Moses and we'll stay here forever. And like... Mary, Mag- Mary Magdalene understood that's not the point of, the life in, of life in Christ. It's not to bottle up your experiences and save them for later. John 20, 17, Jesus says, don't hold on to me, Mary. It's not about bottling up your experiences. I haven't ascended yet. Go to my brothers, tell them I, I am ascending to my father, your father, my God, your God. So Mary Magdalene went to the disciples with the news, I've seen the Lord. Middle schools are just coming back. Don't worry. Just let them come in. We're about to wrap up. So in all the gospels, what this says is when Mary meet, when someone meets Jesus, they're given a mission, okay? So if you're a student coming in, you're going to hear a couple of things. I want you to listen to this. When someone meets Jesus, they're given a mission. And that, Mary reminds us that Christian faith's not just Jesus and me, me and Jesus. It's not what it's about. It's about leaving the tomb. Like she's in the tomb with Jesus, and Jesus says, go. Leave the tomb, which is leaving your place of encounter with God in confidence that the resurrected Christ both goes with you as well as in you. He's, he's chosen to express his life through you. You. Every one of you. And so leave the tomb. That's what the story of Mary, Mary Magdalene's all about. We have this urgent and important job to do. And we have a new identity to do it with. Like, Mary's the first person to know her new identity. Did you notice that when uh, Eric read the, the passage? Je- Jesus says this, I've ascended, I'm ascending to my, my father and your father. My God and your God. This is the first time in the Bible, in the New Testament, 
Jesus teaches us to pray our Father. First time he says to anyone, my God and your God. My Father, your Father. Jesus is your Father. And that's what Jesus is telling her. He's saying that, that our, we, have a, we are included into a new family. Radical inclusion. As Hebrews 2 says, he is bringing many sons and daughters to glory. Uh, he is not ashamed to call us brothers and sisters. Not ashamed to do that. Like the God of the universe, the Son of God, says, brother, sister, we're family. Uh, he's not ashamed, which reveals this radical inclusion. He sanctifies those. We're one with Jesus. And we're, guys, we're called a radical union. Okay, that's what this is all about. And, and union with Christ says that you and I were made to be part of God's family. And only inside of that family will you experience freedom. Only inside of it. Some, some believe that's the most central truth of the gospel. I happen to believe that. Um, Paul says it this way, that in Romans 8, that uh, Christ in you, you've been adopted in God's family, and that spirit of adoption tells us you're free. You're adopted. You're part of God's family. And, and so we suppose this message of Jesus is all about Jesus going off to heaven, right? And forever and ever, and one day we're going to get there with him. We're going to join him there, and it's all going to be good, and all this is going to be over. And that misses the point of the indwelling life of Christ. The point, Christ, the, in, the point of this that's highlighted here with Mary from Jesus' lips is that it's not about getting to heaven someday if you're lucky. That's not the point of this, if you're there for this today. Resurrection doesn't mean absence. It means presence in your life. Um, it doesn't mean we're left alone to our own devices. It means we belong. We belong to God's family. It's such a gracious word. To us. In fact, did you notice he says, my brothers. These are the guys who deserted him at the cross. Go and tell my brothers that I'm ascending. He's even saying, I forgive you. The first word of the resurrection for those who are terrified and broken down and who are abandoning hope is, that, is this, Mary, tell them I'm alive. You've seen me? My God, your God? And Go tell them they still belong. They don't have to do anything. This is the message you get to tell your friends in work. You don't have to try. God loves you no matter what. No matter what. Uh, There's this boy, I'll finish with this. There was this boy in Kenya where I lived for a year who was part of our outreach in Mathari Valley. I ministered to street teenagers and homeless kids. And um, a lot of them lost their parents. And that's why they're on the streets. And they're, you know, they're, they're living together in gangs. And this one boy had stolen something from a store, you know, kind of like Jean Valjean stole some bread or something. And uh, so he gets, he went into jail. And in, in Kenya, you're caught stealing your prison, like death penalty sometimes. I mean, it's, it's the legal system there is not, not very just. And so he's facing this judge for sentencing. So I went to court with him and the, the, or with um, some of the nuns I worked with just to be an advocate for this boy because he was guilty. And the judge in the sentencing did the most amazing thing. He first of all said to this little boy, he said, you're not guilty. You're acquitted. I acquit you. Which acquit, acquittal means, this is a fancy word for you're free, free to go. And then he said this. He, he invited us to come back to his chambers with him, uh, us and me and the nuns. So we go back to his chambers. I mean, I'm, this is the embodiment of Jesus, one of the most profound embodiments of Jesus I've ever seen in my life. He invited us back, and this, this little boy is trembling. He has no idea. And then the judge says to him, and this is a Kenyan man, he says, my wife and I, 
um, have been praying about having a, a child. We've been trying, and we haven't been able to have kids. And so we've been praying, and we want to adopt you as our son. And to me, I was like, what? This kid who'd lost his parents, who had stolen, who was dirty, I mean, just kind of rough. This judge just said, hey, you're my son. Will you be my son? And that's who we are in Christ. We are forgiven. We've been enfolded into another story, a family. You don't have to discover, craft, create, achieve, invent, reinvent yourself anymore, friends. Just give it up. Your identity is found deep within God's Son, and His family is where you belong. You're loved. That's the power of Mary Magdalene's story. That's why we come to this table, because we're we're included in a story. We're included in God's family, and God chose to send His Son because He loved the world so much that He would die for it, and then rise from it, and then begin to express himself through it. And this is just an expression of God. It's juice and bread. You're going to take it, dip it, and do that. But God is saying, my spirit dwells in this place and in your lives and in our church, so much so that uh, if you allow yourself to meet Christ here, I'll free you, I'll transform you, I'll include you. There's nothing you have to do, nothing else. Just approach the table. And these gifts are free. So let me take a moment to pray. Um, and then we'll invite you to come forward as families and as, as individuals. God, thank you for the gift of Mary Magdalene. I mean, the pace at which we had to go through that story. But thank you uh, for the, just the little highlights from her story that profoundly articulate your story of love and hope and redemption and healing deliverance, freedom, all the things, God, that you desire for our lives. And so thank you, God, that as we come to the table here this morning and receive the gifts that you've chosen to to demonstrate your life through bread and juice, thank you that we get to receive all those things in measure, God. So freedom available for us today, God. Transformation and healing. We know it's in degrees, God. We, We confess we want it all and we know that you're not going to probably give it all to us today, but we, we accept what you will give. We receive that freely. And we thank you. In Christ's name, amen.